0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Lifelong Learning, featuring thought leaders in the field of continuing medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, the International Association of CME Professionals. Here's your host, Senior Vice President of Educational Strategy for Prova Education, Lawrence Sherman. Technology social quality, quality improvement, and medical education. That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm Lawrence Sherman, your host. And with me today is Dr. Brian McGowan, who's the Chief Learning Officer of Archimedics. And uh, I'll have Brian explain what Archimedics is in a minute. Uh, But we're really going to focus today on what practicing physicians and healthcare professionals should be thinking about the topics that I mentioned in that open. Brian, welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Lawrence. Uh, Why don't you tell us just briefly... Uh, what Archimedics is and what impact that might have on the uh, practicing healthcare professional.
1: Sure. So Archimedics is an informatics and healthcare education company. And our goal is to connect disparate content pieces so that learning is a simpler lifelong process.
0: Well, that was pretty succinct. And, you know, I think some of what we're going to talk about today will be what healthcare professionals uh, need to know about their own learning and how we can help them along. Uh, Is that something you'd uh, feel comfortable discussing?
1: It's a passion of mine for the last decade, I think, is to try to understand uh, what this lifelong learning process is all about.
0: So when we think about that, and we think about lifelong learning and that portion of a physician or healthcare professional's life, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind about the challenges that they have in finding the right education and being active participants in their education?
1: Well, I think there's a familiarity with learning. so. After spending as many years in training as clinicians do, um, you tend to fall into some certain habits. And and I think understanding how those habits impact the way you learn and understand how those habits impact the way you uh, extract insight from experience uh, is critical to the lifelong learning journey. So if if you're open to finding information in different places, then you, you quite often find information begins to find you. And I think some of the social technologies you mentioned in the opening are pretty critical to that. There's new ways to manage this increasing information overload that I think every clinician's challenged with every day.
0: Well, I think that's an important point, Brian, and let's use a word that you said their journey, right? So we know that they have the learner journey throughout the, the course of their lifelong learning, if you will, but let's think about their practice journey, their everyday professional journey, what they do for a living. Where are those moments that learning comes up and and they can start thinking about uh, incorporating that into a personal learning strategy.
1: Sure. So there's some good research here around what are the instances or how many times during the day is a great example. How many times during a day does a clinician have a question that that they need to have answered or, or, or that goes unanswered? Um, and depending on the specialty, primary care, there's a lot of data here that someplace between eight and 15 times a day a clinician is confronted with something in practice that they may not know the answer to. So if it, of those eight to 15 questions, it turns out that two-thirds of them go unanswered. So right there, there's a disconnect between those learning moments in practice. And for a variety of reasons and a variety of barriers, the ability to go back and find those answers afterwards.
0: Okay, so, so if you were talking to a primary care physician and, and you're, you're sort of setting the stage with those uh, unanswered questions, what can they do to uh, facilitate getting those answers and, and start that learning process?
1: I, I think there's a few things they could do. I, I, I think the, the most critical Kind of 30,000-foot view is the idea that when these questions come up, if the clinicians had a structure around them, that they could identify those 15 questions. I think what we find is of the 10 questions that go unanswered, largely they're forgotten or they, uh, the, there's barriers to getting access to that information. So, so they would kind of be the two areas of low-hanging fruit. So number one, can you ensure that the questions aren't forgotten? So can you build a structure that in, in, intentionally sets reminders for you so that those 10 questions are available to you? And once you've, you know what those questions are and you have time later to go back and answer them, do you have access to the information? So they're the, kind of the two approaches. Can you build the structure to remember the questions? And now once you remember the questions, do you actually have the ability to learn later on?
0: Okay, so it, it's interesting. I, I want to touch upon that word structure. Because when we think of undergraduate medical education, and they have four years, and some may have three years soon from what I'm reading, and and from day one to graduation day, they know what they're doing. Now, they may change topics or, or specialties, but they know what the structure is. Then they go into graduate medical education, and in graduate medical education, there's still structure. They know how long their training is. They know that education is going to be provided. They learn a little bit about self-directed learning, but... Let's talk to the people listening right now. What should they be thinking about as they set up their learning strategy for when there is no structure, and how can they set their own structure? So we talked reminders. We talked uh, maybe it's note-taking, whatever it is, so that they can incorporate that when they do CME, and, and when they have these point-of-care questions come up, what can we help them with?
1: All right. So, so what, what our research has suggested is there's actually a set of natural learning actions that every adult has. And I think this is as uh, applicable to medicine and healthcare and various specialties as it is to any other profession, that as an adult learner, there's these four learning actions we take on. When we hear something, we have a question or we hear something and we think this is critical to our learning or this is gonna impact our practice, the first thing we do is we take a note. So the first natural learning action is the science of note-taking. And as clinicians become better note-takers, then uh, their lifelong learning journey will be a simpler process. Um, The second learning action is tied into the first one. So as you're taking a note, what you need to do is really set some reminders for yourself. So if I take a note and I know exactly what it is that the question I want to ask, or I know exactly um, what it is that I've just learned or I've just heard, I want to make sure that I'm reflecting over that over time. First two learning actions are notes and reminders. And the second set. The the third and the fourth learning actions are actually focused on going out and making more of that information. So um, search is the third natural learning action that all adults use. So we're looking for other information that provides greater context, or we're looking for the answers to the questions we have. And it's the fourth one that actually maybe brings our conversation full circle, in, in that there's quite often the case is that Um, there isn't a searchable data set for us to find. What we need is actually somebody else to ask the question of. So the social element of learning is the fourth natural learning habit, and we've all experienced that. To your point, undergraduate medical education, your study groups, the way you train, postgraduate medical education, the entire model is cohort-based in postgraduate medical education. So the challenge I think a lot of clinicians have, and what our research suggests, is how do you find these four natural learning actions in your lifelong learning journey when you don't have the macro structure around yourself.
0: If you're just joining the discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Lawrence Sherman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Brian McGowan, chief learning officer from Archimedics. And, and we're having a really interesting discussion about how practicing clinicians learn and what we can do to help them learn. So I think we gave them those four practical tips. Um, and, and it was funny, you were laughing as we were doing that interview um, because I was taking notes, and so I just put into practice what you were saying. Now, in the clinical setting, are there tools that clinicians can use for note taking? So, is it a voice recording on a phone? Is it a quick note app? Is it a, a, an index card?
1: Whatever the device is, I think that's that's actually where we are in two thousand thirteen. Is that a clinician in practice at the point of care with questions that arise? they're still forgetting two-thirds of them. That's what the data suggests, not to be um, more critical than that, that the data suggests that two-thirds of the questions are answered. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is there is no perfect answer. So um, I had a blog post from June of last year that described the fact that if there's 35,000 clinicians that attend something like an ASCO meeting, there's 35,000 oncology professionals there, there's 35,000 different ways people have tried to evolve these learning actions. So if you're at the point of care, if you're managing patients and you have one of these questions, you're right. You could use a post-it note. You could write it on the inside of your palm. You have the scratch pad that's in the front pocket of your jacket. There's a lot of things that work. The question I would ask, and really the point of the conversation, I think in a broader sense is, are we getting better at those learning actions? So if there are a myriad of approaches a clinician can use at practice to record things as they're coming to mind... Is there a better system that we can put in place? Is there a better structure that we can offer clinicians at the point of care? Um, I know you are, you're a pretty uh, avid user of social technologies and um, software like Evernote or OneNote. And, and with mobile technologies, this is the, the technology, the ability to do this better, is is um, pretty obvious. And I think there's increasing data around the use of mobile technologies, iPads, smartphones in clinical care. The question still is, is what's the application they're using within that device?
0: Right. And it strikes me that we need that sticky note conversion, right? so So you can have, as I often do, a desk full of sticky notes all over, different colors. I try to come up with a scheme and a pattern and they're great questions and they're great notes. And then Four months later, when I see that note again, I say, "Oh, I should have acted upon it." So, I guess one of the things I'm I'm trying to get out of this is what can we tell practicing healthcare professionals as a tip to try to encourage sticky note conversion?
1: Well, I've had a few people argue that the what I refer to as the natural learning actions may be better described as natural learning habits, and it's the fact that they're habitual is part of the problem. That anything that we've evolved or we've been doing for 25 years is a really difficult behavior to change. Um, I, I, I think at this point the science doesn't give us many practical or applicable answers to the question. I think what the science would suggest, what Archimedics is about, what my uh, co-investigators and I have been looking at is, is whether awareness is broadly um, available to clinicians. If you understand, you understand that your post-it notes sometimes don't serve you the way that you need reminders to serve you. I like to think of post-it notes as having a shelf life. At some point, the adhesion falls off the back of the post-it note. That to me suggests that they were not created for lifelong learning. A post-it note was created for short-term memory. It's tough to think that, uh, and I'm just not aware of of much data that that has demonstrated in any comparable effectiveness ways, that there are optimal approaches to this. But I think we all need to understand that we've gotten to this place in time um, serendipitously. There really hasn't been a science behind our learning habits.
0: As I refer to my own notes, uh, there is another topic I'd like to get into for the last few minutes that we have, and that's uh, the topic of social quality improvement quality improvement in healthcare and I know this is a passion of yours. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about social QI and what practicing healthcare professionals and physicians need to know about it.
1: Sure. So, um, in another life, last year I wrote a book called Social QI: The Simple Solutions for Improving Your Healthcare and the The premise was, and I like how these two conversations kind of overlap themselves in in interesting ways, the premise of the social QI model is that the science of quality improvement um, has been evolving in a silo. But there's these other sciences. The science of social networks is really, really being applied in, in other areas of healthcare. It's being applied in other ways of business. So we understand six degrees of separation and three degrees of separation and Nick, Nick Christakis' work. And then there's this other science of behavior change. So what Dan Pink has, has written in, in Drive and what B.J. Fogg's. And, so what I tried to do in social QI is to say if the healthcare community could understand the science of social networks and the science of behavior change, could those two uh, approaches be applied to the science of quality improvement? And then I tell that story, and I I tell that story as it applies to patients, and I have a number of uh, silver lining examples. I tell that story as it applies to healthcare practitioners as well. So it's I think social technologies in healthcare are getting a lot of play. There's a lot of buzz around social technologies in healthcare. I think the social sciences in healthcare, what the social technologies permit to happen, the connections to the edges of your social graph, and the understanding of centrally located physicians, I don't feel as if that's the science of social networks is really applied. That's what social QI is. It's the combination of the sciences.
0: And the practical points for the practicing physician from that would be what?
1: Um, if you think about how you learned in medical school, you think about how you learned in residency, and you think about the, the validation and the social learning structure that is really taken for granted in those phases of medical training, and then you move out in the lifelong practice, what ends up happening is the social graph that you're sharing and engaging with ends up being focused on pedigree, so where did you train and who did you train with, or geography. Who's in close proximity to you, or who are your practice partners? Quite frequently, the answers to the questions are in a social graph that's broader than the way the social graphs have existed in healthcare. So, if we can find the way to build broader social graphs where a question that one clinician has has most certainly been asked dozens and dozens of times in the preceding few weeks, there are probably other people that have the answers. So the practical takeaway is to, to try to stay open to you and broaden your social graph in new ways, and can technology do that for us?
0: Well, I think the two parts of our discussion today really did meld together, and I think there were some practical tips that came out for the, the practicing physicians because I think that's key. Data is driving us and converting those data into practice tips to help the education is what we need. Anything else you want to add before we close?
1: I mentioned earlier this idea of familiarity. I think we've all been in a situation where we've been lifelong learners or teachers or faculty members for so long, and we think that we're doing it really well. And and it's not to be critical of the process. It's just the adult learning process. There's a science behind it, and I think we all need to stay a little bit open-minded to how that science evolves.
0: Well, my thanks to our guest, Dr. Brian McGowan. We've been discussing learning behavior, and social quality improvement here at the Alliance for Continuing Education and Health Professions annual meeting. I'm your host, Lauren Sherman. Join us next time. And be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring thought leaders in the field of medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, the International Association of CME Professionals.